Yeah, so I'm Will, and I've done this a couple times before. I'm going to adjust myself here so I can see this little monitor. It's a cheat sheet for me. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to share today. It is going to be on the topic of worship, and um, for me, that's something that's really exciting to share about because it was a place where God really impacted me deeply very early on in my walk with the Lord. And it was, I think, back in May that Kurt asked me to speak on that. And like John was kind of saying, it could be a high-raised eyebrow kind of deal. And I was like, Kurt has no idea what he's getting himself into today. But he's not here, so it'll be all right. Um, you know, what was really so impactful for me when I first came to the Lord, I was about 15 when I first started coming to the church and came to the Lord. And I really didn't have any kind of concept of what church was really like at that point. And times of corporate worship were so impactful for me. And I, I was thinking back to one of those times. And I was, it was within this church back at our old campus. And I had no idea. I was like, okay, people are singing. I guess I'm going to do that. And I was sitting next to a friend that was uh, from the youth group, and she was raising her hands while she was singing, and I was like, okay, well, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to church now, and I guess that's what you do at church, so I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, let's just, all right, put my hands up, and uh, I remember, like, as soon as I put my hands up, I was thinking, like, hey, are they too high, are they too low, am I doing it weird, uh, is this how you're supposed to do it, and then I was like, you know, I didn't see any guys raising my, their hands, maybe it's only something girls do, am I doing it, like, really wrong right now? And uh, I was just kind of like, well, whatever. They're already up. I don't have a way to get them down that's not weird either. So I just kind of leave them up. And I started just thinking about the words of the song that we were singing and thinking about, I was a new believer at the time. I was thinking about how God really saved me and my affections toward the Lord and what he had done for me. And the most remarkable thing happened to me. And it was as I had my hands stretched out, I felt like, there were, I don't know, like another set of hands interlocking with mine as I was worshiping. And this unbelievable feeling of peace and harmony and connectedness with God came over me. And I was just like, okay, God's really here and he's really real. And after the last song, I sat back down and a guy that was sitting behind me that I really respected a lot, he was a guy I looked up to, kind of patted me on the shoulders. I was like, all right, it is okay to do that. It's not just a girl thing. Like, guys can do it too. Um, but during that time in my life, it was such an impactful season in my life, not only because of what the Lord was doing with me in worship, but doing with me in all areas. And for me, it was so powerful and dramatic because it wasn't something that I had ever experienced before, not only with church, but even with my own emotional state. When I came to the Lord, I felt so disconnected from everything and everyone around me. I was really struggling a lot with depression. And one of the places where I felt like the Lord meet me is even in working in those areas. And I looked forward to coming to church every Sunday for that. I looked forward to seeing those times of connectedness with the Lord. And truthfully, for years, it was almost like that same experience. Every time I entered into worship, every time I entered into his presence, it was just this overwhelming feeling of, wow, God's really here and I really belong with him and belong to him. But that feeling of depression that I mentioned, it's not something that just went away when I was in God's presence. It was something that I still struggled with. I felt like I was just buried under this weight of sadness, guilt, frustration, uh, even anger at times. And those words might not be the best words to describe what I was feeling, but it's as close as I can get to describing how it is that I felt. I felt like I was in a dark pit that I couldn't climb out of. Not how you thought a worship sermon would start, I'm sensing. But, you know, I felt like those feelings overshadowed my perspective on everything. I felt like I didn't have any friends. I felt isolated and alone. I felt like my family, that I was distant and disconnected from them. And looking back on it, I know that it was what I was dealing with, what I was struggling with internally that was the problem. It wasn't anything outside of me. Uh, a lot of 
Well, a few of the good friends that I still have today are people from that time. They were good friends then and they're good friends now. In my family, I realize that there are people who absolutely love me and care about me, want my happiness and success in everything I do. And I had leaders, even people that are in this church today, like Josh and Justine, that invested so much into me, not only in terms of helping me come to understand who the Lord is, but understanding who I am and what my strengths are and um, how to interact with others as well. So that's kind of who I was and where I was when I first started coming into worship. I remember feeling pretty broken inside, but finding God's presence in really deep, really profound ways for myself. During those times, as I would worship, I would hear God talk to me clearly. (laughs) He would reaffirm my identity, that I did have value, that I was worth something. And I even remember realizing in worship that God saw all of my sin. And I was like, what a terrifying thought that he sees all of this. The things that I thought I could keep hidden in secret, I knew that he saw because he told me that he saw them. And that sounds like a kind of scary idea, but the reason it was such a beautiful thing for me is because he told me that he saw them and he didn't look away from me. He didn't leave me or forsake me because of the things that I did. I believe that God was good, and I still do, and I believe that he saved me out of that darkness. So when I was feeling the weight of that depression I was living in, I told myself, you know, it can't really be that bad. I tried to separate my feelings from what I thought reality to be, what I thought God's word was saying was really true. And I did everything I could to escape it, to try to avoid it, to try to tell myself, what you're feeling, it just isn't true. It isn't real. There's a deeper truth, a deeper reality. And it actually kind of helped me. I stopped feeling depressed. The, The scary part is that I started feeling nothing. It was like I was numbing myself to something and something else that was all around me. I didn't feel as much sadness or hopelessness, but I didn't really experience happiness to the same heights either. And when I would go into worship, and I even think about doing that in this room, I would come in and think, you know, I'm feeling depressed, but God deserves my best. God deserves the best of what I have. So I'm just going to check my feelings at the door. I'm going to leave them there like a backpack, like a weight that I can just hang up and then walk in and not carry those things with me. And to some degree it worked. But I think it's actually detrimental to what we're meant to experience in worship. I think that it's actually the opposite of how we're supposed to come into God's presence. And maybe that's something that you've done as well. It's something I think many of us do in really subtle ways. It's like we set up these safe zones. It's like, okay, it's okay for God to interact with me here. It's okay for me to interact with God as long as I'm not feeling this way. Um, But when we do that, we put up little walls around us and try to build those safe places. And maybe you have one of those as well. I was thinking as I was preparing about this, like, well, what are those safe places I still try to create? And one of them for me is finances. Like, when people talk about tithing, I'm like, uh (laughs) I don't want to hear this. Not because I don't know it's good, but because I think, you know, if I just had a little more to go around, everything would be so much easier. And to give of what I feel like is already constricted, it's like, man, that feels so hard. And so my wife is great about tithing, and she really pushes both of us to do it. And I almost think about tithing, like, defiantly now. It's like, you know what? I don't know if there's enough to go around. But I know that God is good, and he... I think, says it pretty clearly in his word. That's my own conviction that we're supposed to do it and we're supposed to still do it now. And so it's almost like an act of defiance against my circumstances to say, yeah, I am going to do this. And if it goes poorly, well, if God told me to do it, then I guess I have to go to him with the consequences of what it brings about. Where is it that you build up walls in your heart? Where is it that you say, this is a safe place for God to interact with me, and where is the place that's not safe? Maybe you tell yourself, you know, I just need to keep faith. Maybe you even say it out loud. I just need to have faith in 
show that I have faith and God will work this out on my behalf. But inside, you feel like you're crumbling. Privately, it's something that you maybe feel comfortable with doing, going to the Lord and saying, you know, I am really struggling with this, God. But what if you brought that out publicly? (laughs) Is it something that you feel like you could do? Is it something that you feel like other people around you would accept? Is it even something that you think God would um, sanction? Something that he would say, this is actually how you're supposed to live. Those ideas for me are very scary. It's a very scary thought to say, I'm going to be vulnerable, and this is who I really am, and this is where I really need to see God meet my needs. But I think that those are the places, those are the places that God wants to meet us in a very deep, very real way. And we're going to do that today by looking through the Word, going through Psalm 22, which is, uh, if you've looked at it in your Bible recently, I just noticed this this morning, actually. It says a, I think it says a song of complaint and a praise of the Lord. And I think that those two things are unified, and that's where we're going to head today and see how God would answer us. So we're going to have Zach Rogers pray for us this morning. So Zach, thanks for praying, and pray that I get this out, and for another church as well. God, we come before you this morning. I do pray that Will would deliver the sermon that you would have him uh, bring to us. And I want to lift up another church as well. I I pray for the uh, Toriel Foursquare Church uh, in the Philippines, and pray a blessing over that church. I ask that um, the pastor there would bring out your message. Uh, Change your people, God, worldwide. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah. And before we get right into scripture, I should say that I'm a bit of like a self-proclaimed, self-professed Bible nerd, and my good friends would probably tell you that that's not the only thing I'm nerdy about. So uh, I was thinking that, you know, I kind of think of myself and call myself a bit of an intellectual, and what I mean by that is not that I'm smart. <laughs> it's actually not that at all. It's that for me, a lot of times my heart follows my head. When I really get something into my head and really start believing it and understanding it, almost like, uh, I don't know, like a mechanic. Like if I was to really take apart an engine and really understand it, then I would have such a sense of ownership of it that I would say, oh yeah, I know exactly what the problems are and I can really own it and believe it. Well, the same thing is for me for matters of the heart. When I start thinking about things in a deep way, it's like my heart finally leaps up inside of me and says, oh yeah, that's right, that's good, that's true. And so we're going to be going through scripture looking at it in maybe a little bit different way than you're used to looking at the Psalms. Um, If you've read them for devotionals or things like that, we're going to dissect it a little bit more. But the reason we're doing that is because I think that for a lot of us, um, our hearts do follow our minds and where our minds go. And even more than that, whether you're the kind of person that you think is led more by their heart or by their head, God's interested in us and his entire people, and he wants to meet us in both places. And my thinking on the Psalms has been pretty heavily influenced by an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, and I actually YouTubed him yesterday and listened to some of his lectures, and I was like, oh, wow, I don't really agree with a lot of stuff this guy says. That happens a lot with some more of the scholarly believers out there. But in the Psalms, I think he's really spot on and came up with something that's pretty helpful in understanding them. There's a lot of Psalms that I like to ignore. And Psalm 22 that I'm preaching on today is one of them for the reason that it really doesn't fit the categories of what we usually say are safe to talk about the Lord with. And scripture is not safe to talk about the It's like such a disconnect for me. How could it be that something in the Bible is what I don't feel comfortable talking to the Lord about? Um, He puts the Psalms into three categories, and I haven't seen this anywhere else. I think it's pretty unique. Um, But when you have an idea of what your end goal is when you're organizing things, you kind of come up with what the solutions are before you even look at all the data. And that's okay. I I was thinking about that and. I didn't say I was going to say this. Um, My wife and I organize our closets so differently. And I think my wife's like leading indicator of how you would organize a 
her wardrobe is based on color. It's like, well, what color do I feel like wearing today? What mood am I in? How do I decide? Look at the spectrum, decide what it is that fits most. Uh, me, I'm all about functionality. And I'm like, okay, there are two categories. There's work and not work. And the colors could be anywhere. She would look at it and be like, that's not organized at all. That's not helpful. Well, the same thing can be said of when we look to try to put scripture in different categories. There's ways that can, they're not fully encompassing. They don't really give us a good grasp of what's completely out there, but we can find some helpfulness in them. So um, in the, his book, Spirituality of the Psalms, I just read this recently and unrelated to preparing for this actually, because a friend of mine posted a link on Facebook that um, Logos Bible Software, they actually release a free book every month and you can just go to their website and download it. And there's some, if you're into that kind of stuff, there's some kind of cool scholarly writing out there. I'm all about what's free, so <laughs> it's, it's good and right. Okay, so um, there are three different categories that he puts the Psalms into and two movements that he describes in them. The three different categories are orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. And the reason that I'm saying all this is because I think it helps us locate Psalm 22 with a broader context, and it also helps us put it in the context of our lives. So orientation, the idea behind that is that everything's good. Everything is as it should be. It's those times where we feel full of joy, full of peace, happiness. We see God's promises, and we see God fulfilling his promises. What often happens, and I think this is actually necessary for the deepening of our walk with the Lord, for the deepening of our relationship with him, is that we can't stay in that place forever. We actually can't stay in either of the other two places forever either because God's trying to take us on a walk and on a journey where we would go to understand them better. And the movement from orientation to disorientation often comes with some kind of suffering, some kind of trial, some kind of tragedy or crisis of faith that we go through. Then the Psalms of dis disorientation or songs of disarray, these are things that I think um, we often struggle with in, in our walk and struggle with how to express them to the Lord in a helpful way. There are those times where we've been challenged and see that the things that we thought so fit so neatly about the Lord don't seem to fit at all right now in my circumstance. It's not that we stop believing that he's good or that he works on our behalf, but it's that we just don't see where a rescue is coming from. The next move is into new orientation, which is like a surprise of hope. Something that we didn't think would be there to rescue us, but God works through it and moves through it. And suddenly we look back on our songs of disarray with a new understanding of what God's doing, with a new orientation to his promises. They're hymns and songs of thanksgiving. So Psalm 22 is actually one of those songs of disorientation. It's those areas where we go, you know, I don't know how it is that God's working it out, and I'm not sure if he's going to work it out or when. So as we go into that, I'm just going to start reading the words. So in Psalm 22, it says, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Embedded in these words, I think, are David's first request. He's looking for God to be his deliverer and his deliverance. So how, does, how is it, and this is where I'm kind of dissecting a little bit, when I read that, I think, how is it that 
that David knows that God is a deliverer? How does it that he knows that God can deliver him? I think there's two places that you can go to where God shows himself as a deliverer to David. And I think this is the same for true, the same is true for all of us when we're looking for God to do something that we believe him to be. There's personal experience, and there's also the history of God's people. Looking back on what's happened with other people, even in the word, to see what it is that God has brought about with them. And one of those places that God, or that David sees God as a deliverer is with David and Goliath the great story that we probably all know, David actually knew that God could deliver him before that, and that's the reason he walked into battle with Goliath. He said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And he's trying to explain to Saul why it is that he's willing to go into battle as a boy with someone who is much bigger than him, who's a warrior who has been tested. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David saw it firsthand that God could deliver him. It may not be a one-to-one comparison of what he's going through in Psalm 22, but he thought, well, if God could deliver me against a lion or a bear, which usually like one-on-one man versus bear doesn't go so well. I learned that on TV. (laughs) Um, But also, if he's going to deliver him from things like that, surely he can deliver him in the circumstance that he's facing right now. Another, the other side of what David may be experiencing and where he's saying, you know, God can deliver me, is he looks back on the history of Israel, the people that he's now king of, up until this time, thinking, hmm, how is it that God delivered the people before? And as the people had come out of Egypt, um, they'd been delivered from the hands of their oppressors. They had been delivered even through the wilderness wanderings and the beginnings of that. They didn't have any source of food or water, and God gave that to them as their provider. And Moses is telling all this to Jethro. So Jethro's response is that he says, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And I think that as David in this psalm is thinking, I need a deliverer or more accurately in his circumstance of life, he's thinking, I need a deliverer. I think a lot of these things are playing back in his mind of how can I really be sure that God will deliver me? There's one other place in Israel's history that I think is really profound, and it really comes out in David's words, and it's in the period of the judges. The people have gotten into the promised land, and within a generation, they basically rejected God's calling on them as a people. And so they're struggling with um, even following the God even following God with any sort of certainty or regularity. And when they did that, God would send other people in to oppress and afflict them so that they would cry out to him again. And when the Lord had raised up judges, this is from Judges 2.18, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, the same word that David uses there, because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. So I think David has this internal conflict of wrestling with, I don't see where God's help could come from, and I'm really struggling on to hold on to hope and to faith that he will. And God's, David is asking for deliverance, which is a direct result of God's responding to the people's groaning before. And he says, I know who you are, and I've seen what you've done for other people who would groan to you. And I'm trying to do the same thing, desperately looking for your salvation and where it's going to come from. So back at Psalm 22, um, I think in David's desperation, there's one other thing we can hear even more loudly in. And it's actually the first part of the first verse, which I, I left off intentionally. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's feeling completely alone at the hands of his oppressors, not knowing 
if or when, if or when God will come to rescue him. And it's a real struggle. And I think we all face things in our lives, in our hearts, where we go, you know, this isn't working out the way that I thought it would. This one area, it just doesn't seem to be fitting with how I thought my life would go and how I thought my life would go because God's working on my behalf. And I'm going to push the pause button on where we are in Psalm 22 for just a second because I want to try to understand who David is and why it is that he feels comfortable talking to the Lord like this. And I'm not saying, hey, look at David. We're going through the exact same things he did. I don't have, like, a band of people out for my life right now, as far as I know. I mean, I, maybe I do, and I just don't know about it. That would be kind of weird. Um, but I think that there's something to be had in David's heart and his response and why he's coming to the Lord in this way. And you probably, many of you have heard before that God, or that David was a man after God's own heart. Anyone hear that before? You know, that's something that gets said so many times in church that I think we forget that it's actually a label that we didn't put on him. It's a label that's put on him in Scripture. David was a man after God's own heart. So how is it that David is really a man after God's own heart? I often think, and I think in our culture, we may think, well, you can't be someone who's after God's heart if you're, like, complaining about what's going on. That certainly couldn't be right, right? But I think the way that David is a man after God's own heart isn't his complaint. It's that he brings the realness of the situation that he's going to through God. There are no walls, no barriers. There's no um, falsehood or facades that are put up that say, okay, this is my safe place to interact with God. He just leaves all those down and says, God, I am struggling and I don't know where you're going to meet me. There's something wrong. I'm hurting. I think he even says to God, do you see? Do you see what's happening? Do you hear my cries? Do you hear my groaning? And the way I'm reading this, I don't see David's words as some kind of religious, pious prayer. I don't think David's trying to say positive things about God, like, oh yeah, I know that you've delivered before, and so you can deliver again. I think that he's trying to make an argument with God, saying, I've seen you do this before, and I need you. Are you going to show up? When will you show up? Are you going to or not? Even in his words that God is enthroned in the praises of Israel, that's one of the things that actually leading worship, I feel like I've said more than any other phrase. Like God is enthroned in the praises of his people. And so then I think, okay, we're at church and we're going to praise him. And he's going to show up. The place that this comes from is David's like heartfelt need for God to show up in the midst of his circumstance. And that just blows me away that, I don't know, for so many times I could miss what it is that was being said when I said those words. I feel like David was saying to God, you know, you created the heavens and the earth, and I feel like those two places are really far apart right now. And I need you to be here and to show yourself as king. Because in my heart and in my circumstance, it seems like someone else is running the show right now. Things aren't going according to the way that I thought you planned it, God. And I need you to be the king who can come in and write this for me. From verses 6 to 21, David describes really how bad the situation is. And we're going to read that I don't think that it's any stretch of imagination, and I'm not an expert on the life of David. Maybe someone else knows where this comes from, but some of the things he describes, I'm like, I have no idea where in the Bible that would be. When did that happen to David? When? And I don't think that David's really being dramatic or poetic, but I think that we don't have record of it, and I think that he's trying to describe the things that he feels in his heart are against him whether or not we have another record of it. And so in uh, verse 11, it says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is no one to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as, uh, as a ravening and a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And hear this next part. Think about 
where else you've heard things like this. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaw, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver uh, my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen you answer me. That last part, what does that sound like? Where else have you heard that? In Jesus, in the crucifixion. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. I think of that phrase he says on the cross, I thirst. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And To me, that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like the crucifixion. I don't remember reading any story about David where his hands were pierced or his feet were pierced. Do you? I don't. Maybe he's being dramatic and poetic, but I think that he's trying to express the deep things that are in his heart. And um, we're going to get to it, but I think it's amazing how God uses it. I want to try to experience that passage like someone would that maybe saw the crucifixion of Jesus. And to do that, I'm going to use a little bit of a parallel analogy. And this is, um, the reason I'm doing this is because I think that in that moment, there's really something profound to be had, but it's not normal for our culture to have scripture memorized. And if you remember, I think it was two weeks ago, and I'm forgetting the couple's name that came um, someone has a much better memory probably remembers it. The Carlsons. Thanks, Adam. He has a much better memory than me. Um, so they came and did like kind of a dramatic recital of the book of Ephesians. And I was like, man, how intimately must he know that book that he's meditated on it to the point that he can speak all of it out just on the spot and not only memorize all the words but connects with the emotion of it. Well, for hundreds of years before we really had our written Bibles, they were passed down orally. The stories were passed down, um, and it was normal for people to memorize large chunks of Scripture. And so I'm going to go to a place where I think a lot of us have a bit of it memorized, and that's Psalm 23, the very next psalm. And does anyone know how it starts? Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. And when you hear those words, you often probably, whether you have it memorized or not, or have intentionally memorized it, you've probably become so accustomed to the imagery of it that you really have a good grasp of what's in there, whether or not you've memorized it word for word. And um, I'm going to put this image up and just say, the Lord is my shepherd. And what does this bring to mind in the psalm? For me, it brings to mind the very next verses. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, if I put up something very different and said the same thing, the Lord is my shepherd, is there something in that psalm that resonates with you as you see that? I've been thinking, and maybe many of you have over the last few weeks, about persecution that's happening to Christians around the world. And when I see that, I actually think of Psalm 23. Not because of those verses I just read, but because of the next passage. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And why is it that I will fear, fear no evil? Because you are with me. I think that when when someone in the first century who, you know, if we have Psalm 23 memorized, they probably had Psalm 22 and 23 memorized. 
And they're watching Jesus' crucifixion thinking, I have no idea what is happening right now. Someone that had put their hopes and dreams in him being Messiah is thinking, that is completely shattered. That is completely gone to waste. And then he utters the words that are the first words of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just like these images bring to life some aspects of Psalm 23 does, when he says those words and they have watched the whole rest of that psalm unfold right before their eyes, to me it does this crazy, my heart leaps in my chest and says, yeah, your mind is onto something that your heart can really believe in too. All of it was foretold. And he even said something to them so that they would see that it was foretold. And in Scripture, there's both, um, this is what I believe about Scripture. You may believe something a little bit different. I think that it's a fairly common position among believers to agree with God's Word that is inspired, that is God-breathed. And that means that all of it has a divine author to it. But God didn't pen the Word himself. He used human agents to come up with what Scripture really is. He doesn't compromise their thinkings, their personality, their beliefs as he does it. Somehow it's God and man working in tandem that produces his word. And for David, as he's writing those things down, when I read the psalm, I don't get any impression that he knows what he's saying. I don't mean that like he's absent-minded and God's just penning through him. I don't mean that at all. I think I, he knows exactly what he's writing down. But I don't think that he, I don't know. Does it seem like as we read that passage that David like saw a vision of the crucifixion? It's like, okay, I'm just writing this down. It doesn't seem that way to me at all. It seems like he's just saying, this is my desperate heart cry that I need God to deliver me. And how is it that God uses David's doubt? How is it that he uses David's fear? How is it that he uses David's place in his heart that may be many of us try to build walls around and say, this place isn't safe. This place I can't share with other people. How does God use it? He uses it to say, this is where my kingdom will break through. He uses it not only as this place of, yeah, you're hurting, you need something, but for God's glory to be forever known throughout all the earth is how God uses David's doubt. And for me, I feel pretty comfortable going to the Lord and saying, okay, God, I'm really struggling with this. David doesn't just do that privately with the Lord. The Psalms aren't a private expression of David's faith. They're a public record that now all of us have to glean from, to hear, to understand, to see God's word, and to see God's activity come to life right before our eyes. I think about the disciples and how they would have been wrestling with what they saw. And in Psalm 22, from verse 21 where we left off reading to Psalm 20 or to verse 22 it's almost like inexplicably the complete tone of the psalm just changes and i don't think that outside of seeing Jesus resurrected we really understand why it is that it changes but think about it he's just laid out for you what looks like Jesus crucifixion and for no reason it changes, we know what the reason is. It's that Jesus rose again. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He hasn't ignored our cries, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried for help, he heard him. Do you think David could have possibly known how deeply God heard him? When I see this in Scripture, it makes me think about that divine author and that human agent that's working as well. And 
I think that all too commonly, I excuse myself from being able to be that human agent because I don't think that it's okay (laughs) to talk about what my fears are, my complaints of the Lord. But God uses it in the most profound way in the life of David. Why is it that something in my life he couldn't use the same way? Jesus isn't going to be crucified again, so I don't think that any of my complaints, when I use the words of them, we're going to see that kind of prophetic imagery. But for me, when I read that psalm, it builds faith in me because I realize that God is sovereign and in control and that he's powerful and that when I look at what he's done, he had planned it all long before. And the places in my life where I'm not sure it's going to work out, it becomes faith for me if I go to God and say, hey, I don't know where rescue's coming from, but I need you. I don't think that it's good enough for us as a community of believers to have those moments privately. And what I'm saying is a little bit, this is where I go from preaching to meddling, I guess. I don't think that it's okay for those places to all stay private. I think that what it looks like when we share our sorrows and concerns with one another is it not only becomes faith for me, but it becomes faith for you. That it builds something not only in my life that comes alive in the light of what God does in the future, but it comes to life in your life as well. It makes me wonder about the uncertainty that I face that I've kept bottled up inside if maybe I was meant to share it with someone else. Because when that happens, God would meet both of us. He didn't want to just do something privately with me, but he wants to do it with all of us. What are the things that are most unredeemable in my sight? What are the things that seems like evil's winning out over good? Those are the songs of disarray, but God wants to sing a new song and breathe new life through them. Just like this morning when when Adam came up and in the way Greg and Carol were leading saying, you know, you may not feel like you have anything else or anything more to give, but God wants to breathe a new song through that as we would confess what it is. Do you think that if we embrace this as a community that we could really see positive fruit? I really think it does, and it makes me really fearful to say yes because it's very countercultural for us to share those kinds of things. I think that it's more common for us to say, oh, that's going on with you? Well, you just need to have faith. Just believe that God's going to meet you there. And I absolutely blew it doing that this week. As I was preparing for the sermon, someone came to me and said, hey, I'm really struggling with this, and I am really concerned that it's not going to go well. And I was like all too quick to rationalize and say, oh, yeah, it's going to be fine. It's just going to work out. Well, that, to me, ignores what it is that happens with David and what I think we're meant to do as a community as well. And before I really go off the deep end, I guess, and try to push us to a place I don't think is right, there's, I want to like give you a caution or a warning. There's two different ways that I think that you can have a complaint with the Lord. And I think that it's true of all relationships too. And so maybe you've seen this work out in your life before on a person-to-person level. You can have a complaint and argument like that where you either try to separate yourself from the person and push them out of relationship or like David does here, you can lobby this, I think it's a complaint against God to say, I do believe those things about you are true. I don't see how it's working out, but I need you to be closer. And I want to give you an example of how to do it the wrong way. Um, because I think it helps to have a caution. When I, was, uh, when I was 19, I think, I had a family member diagnosed with cancer. And I remember um, the doctors gave a very short time to live. They said three to six months. And I thought, this is really bad. Um, 
other family members that I had always thought were like kind of emotionless, like just grief stricken. And for me, I prayed the most violent, most angry prayer that I think I've ever prayed. <laughs> and had I done this in the right spirit, I think that um, I wouldn't have gotten the same response from the Lord. What I prayed was basically, God, I see in your word that you heal. I know that it's possible. I've been overseas. I've seen you heal in like third world countries. I hear stories about it all the time, but do you heal here or not? And what I think I was doing in my heart in that moment was saying, God, I'm hurting, and I just want a little space. And the response that I felt like I got from the Lord was silence. I knew that he, hear, that he heard me, but he knew I didn't want to talk right now. And God didn't reject me. He didn't push me away because of that. It's not like what I did was so wrong that God would abandon me. But in, this, in my spirit, it could have been even better, right? I could have been saying, God, do you heal or not? When are you going to come rescue? Where are you coming from? Where will you meet us? Where will you meet me? In that same way, I think that we need to share what it is that we struggle with and worry about with others in a way of inviting deeper relationship with the Lord. What would our community look like if we did that? What would our world look like if we were doing that? If you're going through some kind of trial, some kind of crisis of faith right now, and you're trying to hold it inside, God will bring you out of it. I really believe that. I haven't seen one of these songs of disorientation that eventually didn't turn into a new perspective on the Lord. I don't know when it's going to happen. I have no idea. But maybe God will bring something about. If you're keeping those things inside, it will grow faith in you. If you share them with a spouse, a threefold, a small group, other believers in community, it'll grow faith in you and in them. And I did say this would be like a worship sermon, right? Um, when we come into worship, the same thing happens. If you feel like, you know, I just need to give God my best, so I'm going to check all my garbage at the door. There's a nice closet for it out there. I'm going to come in and just think about happy thoughts and sing praises to God. There's an even deeper place I think God wants to meet you in. Oftentimes in worship, even now, it's easy for me to be distracted. I think, wow, you know, this song's pretty good. Or, wow, this song's pretty good, and people really seem to be worshiping, but for whatever reason, I don't feel anything inside right now. I just feel stale or stagnant. Or, well, I'm coming into worship, and I'm really supposed to be worshiping the Lord, but I had an argument with a friend, with a coworker, with a spouse right before I came in today, and that's all I can think about. Those are the places that God wants to meet you. He doesn't just want to meet you when you're doing the right things and things look good, but in your own places of need. As we, were think, as we were doing that last song this morning, that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking, wow, I really am feeling kind of empty right now. God, what are you going to do with that? And so I kept singing the song and thinking about what it meant, but also look deeper inside and look towards God to say, how is it that you're going to meet me in this? And I think those are the deep places that God wants to meet us in. And there's really two things I think you have to embrace if you want to embrace this within our community. One is that you have to be open to the opportunity to go and share something that's a little bit difficult, something that you need to be a little bit vulnerable with with other people. The second thing is, if you're on the other end of it, be quick to listen and slow to speak. We've been talking about empowerment within our series for forever now, <laughs> for a long time. What if instead of giving good, wise advice or the answers that we like to give, just hold on, just have faith, 
What if instead of being quick to speak those things, you were quick to listen for a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom? Maybe God would anoint you and empower you to do physical healing right in that moment as you let the Holy Spirit work through you. But then if you're thinking, you know, I don't think I have any of those things today. Maybe all the best response would be is just to listen, to listen to someone's grief and sorrow and patiently wait with them for the Lord to respond and to answer. Is that something that you'd be willing to do? It's a scary thought for me. Is that something I'd be willing to share? Don't write yourself out of the story that God may be trying to write in the world. Don't write your grief, sorrow, or doubt out of God's plan because as demonstrated in his word, he absolutely uses it. He uses it in ways that are profound and deep that even the person who's going through it never could have expected. David, I don't think, ever could have expected that his grief would be a messianic promise the promise of a deliverer to come, the place that God would be most enthroned. And I guess I'm just asking you to do that. So I have two challenges, really. One is to first be willing to be vulnerable in community. Look for the person that God's put in your path to share those more difficult things with. Be willing to open yourself up to some fears. And the second is to be quick to listen to the Holy Spirit as people share with you. Don't be quick to speak. Be quick to look for that opportunity that will bring God's kingdom here on earth in that moment. And be quick to wait patiently with people as we look for where his kingdom will break through. So Lord, we just thank you that your word is good and true. God, we do almost defiantly in the face of our adversities hold on to hope and say, we do believe that you're coming. We do believe that you're working. We do, in the face of persecution, in the face of persecution around the world among other believers, we wait patiently and almost in the same spirit as David, ask you to come, Lord. Ask you to intervene. Ask you and your kingdom to come in and break through in a way that heaven meets earth and the two places connect and we're living in one reality. Lord, give us the strength to look for you in all ways and in all seasons. And even give us the strength to not talk when we need to not talk anymore. So Lord, we thank you that you use the broken things of this world to shine your greatest light through. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bill.